Till safe in glory my anchor is cast. It's a great line. Go ahead and keep that uh, in the back of your head until later. Appreciate those songs, Alan. And uh, good evening, friends. It's so good to have the opportunity to be with you, uh, not only to approach our God and Father in prayer, to praise his name in song, but hopefully now to draw nearer to him through a study of his word. And that is our aim tonight, to open up God's word, to discuss things together, and to hopefully uh, be encouraged, be admonished, um, and, and to grow closer to him. As, as you might expect, when you have somebody who is not the regular preacher, sometimes the topic uh, strays a little bit from what you're used to hearing, and uh, hopefully tonight will not disappoint. Um, so we're going to talk about purgatory tonight, talk about purgatory uh, I had a great conversation with a friend of mine several months ago, uh, and we talked about purgatory, and it stuck with me. And, you know, the more you kind of think about something, you, you spin on it a little bit more, and you get more ideas and more ideas. Um, and I wanted to share some of those things with you tonight. So twofold objective. We're going to talk a little bit about it. Hopefully, all get on the same page so that we can have opportunities as we are out there talking with our friends, talking with our family, talking with our neighbors we can have information, we can have education to talk to people about God's truth. But also, I think there's some really interesting things when you think about just the concept of purgatory itself and what that line of reasoning leads to. And there's some applications for us as well. So, twofold objective tonight. What is purgatory? All right, besides being the source material for way too much Renaissance art, um, purgatory is a place or a state inhabited by souls after death that are purifying themselves before going to heaven. Okay, one more time. A place or a state, so not necessarily a place, but it could be a place or a state that is inhabited by souls after death that are purifying themselves. Obviously, if you look at the word purgatory, you can see purge, that idea there in that word. It goes back to the Latin but these souls need some sort of further cleansing. Uh, if you're familiar with the idea of purgatory, you might be thinking uh, about the Catholic Church. That is probably the, uh, the foremost religious organization uh, that teaches on purgatory. But what is very interesting to me is that this idea is not just found with, with the Catholic Church. Um, it, Orthodox, Anglican, Muslims, Latter-day Saints, uh, even, even with the rabbinic Jewish teaching, they have some of these concepts. And even beyond that, if you start to look at the doctrines that are taught in uh, the Lutheran or, or the Methodist churches, there are some of these same ideas. So this is not just kind of a, a niche teaching by one religious organization. The idea of purgatory or just the idea that our eternal destination is not set in stone at the time of our dying is quite widespread. There are lots of individuals that maybe whether they even realize it or not, part of their teaching or maybe the church or the congregation that they attend, part of their teaching implies that their destination is not set at death. And I think it's interesting, though, that in all of these cases, these are individuals that are eventually going to be saved. So this is not, uh, again, if you're familiar with the Catholic Church, this is not necessarily the idea of limbo, that you're going to a place and it's not, kind of, it's not quite set in stone. Eventually, these people will be saved, 
but there is just this further cleansing, further work is done to get to where you're already going. All right, now, permit me, uh, permit me just a little bit of a tangent. Um, this will hopefully come back, come back into play later. There was a research article from 2021, uh, and they polled American adults, several, several thousands of American adults. 73% of American adults believed in heaven, okay? Uh, interestingly, maybe not surprisingly, but interestingly enough, only 62% believed in hell, okay? So more people believed in heaven than did in hell, but 73% of people believed in heaven. I don't know if that surprises you or not. Um, that was probably uh, about what I would have guessed. This, this is not what I would have guessed. Uh, th- this was just, this, this actually astounded me. 40% of those people, 40% is really close to half. <laughs> Almost half of the people that believed in heaven said that you did not need to believe in God to go to heaven. Believing in God, the almighty creator, just the, the foundational element of religion. And these, these are religious individuals. All of these individuals had a religious affiliation. And then it breaks it down by all the different religious affiliations. So between 20 and 70% of respondents. So again, it broke it all down. So the number ended up being 40%. But that was on this range. In some religions, 70% of individuals who profess to have a religion, who profess to have a faith, said, you did not need to believe in God to go to heaven. That just, that just blew me away. I thought about the Apostle Paul. You know, if, if Christ be not raised, brethren, what are we doing? <laughs> let's, let's, let's eat and drink. These are individuals that have some measure of faith. They have some measure of belief themselves. They believe that there is something after this life, but they did not believe that you needed to acknowledge God to go to this eternal reward, all right? That's the sidetrack, so file that away. We'll come back to that later. All right, let's go back, let's go back and talk a little bit about purgatory. Let's just think about this idea uh, as, as a concept, all right? And, and if you think about it as just a concept, the idea that a soul's destination is not determined, is not set in stone at death, has been around for many years. If you're like me, uh, the first thing I thought about was just the elaborate burial rites of the Egyptians. So you think about all the pyramids and the tombs that they find, and the idea that these people who are still on earth would have to go to these great lengths to make sure that this dead soul would get to the afterlife and then be able to spend their afterlife in the appropriate way. And you see all of these crazy things if you look at these pyramids that have been excavated to where, you know, they have to have, they have, to have boats in there and they have to have food in there and they have to be preserved in a certain way. And so the concept has been around for a long time. You think about uh, the Greeks, the certain burial rites of the Greeks, even going down to needing to put coins on the eyes of the deceased so that they could have something to pay the toll to cross over the river to get into their, their destination. In some ways, it's almost comical to think about the one guy who's left on the side over here because you know, his family forgot to put the coins on his eyes. But, but that, that idea has been around for, for thousands and thousands of years, that the living have this responsibility to do something for those that have passed on, and that those that have passed on are not going to be immediately judged. 
When we think about purgatory specifically, though, this idea of a place or a state of further cleansing, we don't actually see any record of that word. The Latin word does not come around until the late 1100s. So this is an idea that is, that is built upon some of these other things. And then it's almost 100 years after we find that word in 1274 that there is this Council of Lyon. And the Catholic Church spells out some specifics about their teaching on purgatory. Uh, and they would go on to elaborate on it a little bit more at some additional councils in the 1400s. And that's when we really had this idea of purgatory start to take shape. Again, a place, a state of being whereby these souls would undergo further cleansing, further cleansing to eventually get to the point where they would need to be. Well, of course, the big question, we, we've talked about all of these things in history, does this have any basis in the Bible? Are there any scriptures that we can go to to find this concept, to find evidence, to find authority for this concept? Okay? So the first one, uh, we'll go back, turn to 2 Maccabees chapter 12. So if you take your Bibles, um, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find that there. But if you do any kind of research, if you do any kind of looking, the one text that it seems lots of these individuals come back to is 2 Maccabees. If you have read, you've read through the Maccabees, uh, 2 Maccabees is not like a follow-up to 1 Maccabees. There's actually just two of them. There's two Maccabees. Um, this, is, this is a historical writing. What's fascinating about, about the writing is that in chapter 2, the author of this historical work expressly states that he is abridging the five-volume historical writings of another man, Jason of Cyrene, effectively saying, point blank, this is not inspired. <laughs> I, am, I am actually taking something that was way too long for anybody else to read, and I'm going to condense it for you, which is great. That was the cliff notes of the time, the cliff notes of the 150 BCs. So this is good historical writing, but that's what it is. it is. It is a historical writing written by a man who is just abridging the works of another man. Not something that we can go to to take evidence and certainly not something that we can go to to take authority for things that we should practice. But in, in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verses 42 through 45, we see an individual who makes a sacrifice and an offering and prays for his dead soldiers, soldiers that he has uh, in, in, his, in his battalion under his command, they die. And he finds that they have, they have these idolatrous things on them. And he wants to make this offering and pray for them. And from this, there is, there is this tradition and there is this foundation that they find. They say, okay, that is an example that we can turn to that we have this, we have uh, we, we have, I, I guess, some evidence that a soul is not set in judgment at the time that they die, that there can be some expiatory acts. Uh, the Catholic Church would turn to this uh, as a basis for a lot of the selling of indulgences that would go on, again, in those medieval Renaissance times. But one thing that we can, we can look at, even without getting into the authenticity uh, of the Maccabees and trying to just, okay, was this real, was this not real? Jesus, time and time again, rejected the traditions of the Jews that had gone beyond the Scriptures. If you go throughout the Gospels, 
He is there rejecting these traditions, whether it was Corbin or whether it was the specific hand washings or whether it was the improper Sabbath restrictions that they had placed on the people. He had rejected those Jewish traditions that were of men and not of God. And if we are to follow the example of our Lord and Savior, we, I think, would do the same thing here. If somebody were tried to go to one of these apocryphal books or if somebody were tried to go to one of these writings of man to try to find evidence or authority for something that we should be doing today, we must do the same thing that our Lord and Savior did and reject traditions of men that are not found or have any basis in Scripture. Okay? Well, are, there, are there anything else? And again, if you, if, you do some, if you do some research, you will find other verses. Uh, I, I just picked two more that seem to be, uh, I guess, the, the, the most popular ones, the, one that, the ones that came up the most. If you want to, let's turn over to Revelation chapter 21. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 21 is another one that comes up pretty frequently for those that would teach about purgatory. Revelation 21, if you think about the very beginning, is talking about Revelation 21 verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then it goes on to describe this new heaven. And if you look at a familiar verse there in verse 8, who is not going to be part of this new heaven? Verses 9 down through verse 21 describe the beauty and the splendor that are in this new heaven. And as you go to the conclusion there, it kind of comes back to this idea that was introduced in the first part of the chapter. What is not going to be in heaven? And it says in verse 27, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. For those that would, uh, for those that would ascribe to the teaching of purgatory, they would turn to this and they would say, that is why individuals need to be in purgatory because they have died with sin. They still have sin and Revelation chapter 21, verse 27 says that nothing that, uh, nothing that has any kind of uncleanness or defilement upon it can enter into heaven, and therefore purgatory is the place where you would be purged of those. You would undergo that further cleansing. So that, that is why they use this verse there. Let, let's just think about this here. It says in verse 27, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, I think it's very simple. Who is written in the Lamb's book of life. You can stay in Revelation and you can go back to chapter three. Are the ones who are written in the book of life only those that have gone through some sort of additional cleansing or further glorification? No, in Revelation chapter three and in verse five, it says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Our name is already in that book of life. You can go over to Philippians chapter four. Philippians chapter four, and there in verse three, it says, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So to be recorded in that Lamb's book of life, to be those who can enter in to the new Jerusalem, the beautiful new heaven, that heavenly city, 
It is not something that requires some sort of period of further cleansing. We have our names in the Lamb's book of life now as those who have been washed, who have been cleansed, who have been sanctified, okay? One, one more verse, one more verse that you might see. And again, the point behind this is for us to learn, for us to know, so that if we encounter individuals that, that have, this, have this thing, we can, have, we can maybe have some dialogue, maybe have some study with them. This is probably one that you would see, you would see a lot. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let's turn over there. First Corinthians chapter 3. Again, if we think about the context, the context of 1 Corinthians, what was the problem they were facing? It was division. Uh, division. Division for a number of causes, but one of the things that was leading to division was these, these factions, these individuals that said, well, I'm of Paul, or I'm, I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Christ. You know, Paul is the one who taught me. Apollos is the one who taught me or baptized me. And they were dividing themselves up according to who they learned from or maybe who they were baptized by. And Paul just addresses this head on. In the beginning of chapter 3, he says, I can't even talk to you guys. I've got some serious spiritual things that we need to talk about, and I can't even get there because you are still so carnal, so worldly-minded as to ally yourself with the individual who taught you or who baptized you. And he calls them out for that. He says there in chapter 3, uh, in verse 4, when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Not, not a compliment at all. Verse 5, who's Paul and who's Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. We're not going to take the time to just read all the way down uh, those other verses, but that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the roles that they played. They were ministers. God is the one who provides the foundation, and they played a role in edifying and building and planting the seed. Go down to verse 11. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Certainly not Paul, not Apollos. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. All right? So those that, would, again, that would ascribe to the teaching of purgatory look at this, and they say, that's, that's what we're talking about, you know, that you are, need to be cleansed by fire. But... but you have, to, you have to stay in the context here. Who, who is this talking about? It's talking about these individuals that built on the foundation. It's talking about Paul and Apollos. It's talking about individuals that would minister and that would teach. That's who it's talking about. It's not talking about these individuals that are then going to have to go through some sort of refining fire to find out whether or not they're going to be burned up or to be saved. It's talking about a minister here who would go and would do work. And if he, would, if he would labor honestly and build on the foundation that Christ has laid, he is going to be spreading that good word. And hopefully there are going to be souls that receive it. And that, that house is going to be built up and it's going to be edified. And even if it is tried, as with fire, it is going to endure and he's going to receive a reward. Paul oftentimes talked about the, the reward that he had for all of his labors. 
the, the, wonderful, the wonderful fellowship that he had with all of these Christians, with all of these churches. But he also acknowledged there were plenty of people that he had, he had watered, he had planted seed, he had spent time with that did not stay faithful. And he suffered loss. Did that impact his soul and his soul's salvation? No, he had done his job, even though those individuals had chosen to reject the word. So we have to stay in the context here. Is this revealing fire purgatory? Uh, I think it's, I don't think that's, that's the case as revealed in scriptures. First uh, Peter chapter one and verse seven talks about that kind of refining fire that comes upon Christians. If you look over there, First Peter chapter one and in verse seven, it says the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I do, I want to kind of shift gears just a little bit for the, for the, last, the last couple of points here. And I want to talk about some things that are found in the Bible. Because I think as we all recognize, the idea of purgatory stands in opposition to multiple clear and direct passages of Scripture. Uh, I think we could spend a lot of time here. Uh, Leland, Leland actually touched on some of these this morning in a, very good, in a very good lesson. The scriptures are abundantly clear to us that there are no second chances after this life. Uh, go, go back with me to our scripture reading. Thank you, Josh, for reading that in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 in verses 19 through 31 we have the account of, of Lazarus and the rich man. If you're like me, this account probably promotes just as many questions uh, as, as it does uh, provide answers. But there are some things that, that I think are abundantly clear. And if you are trying to find a way to, to reconcile the idea of purgatory, it is just so hard to me to look at these verses and, and find that. Uh, I think especially about verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who would want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. As the rich man was in torment, note, not some sort of cleansing fire, not some, not some sort of refining process or glorification process. The rich man is in torment. He is in such great pain and torment that what would be incredible to him at this moment is a finger dipped in a little bit of water and dropped on his tongue. That's, that's the level of pain and suffering that he is going through. And this would have been a great time if there was some sort of light at the end of the tunnel to say, you just need, you just need to work off some of those sins that you have you just got to the end of the road and you had a couple of extra sins and now you just need some, some further cleansing or you really just need a little bit of extra glorification. There's no hope provided here. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There are no second chances after this life. Our life is full of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and on and on and on. As Leland talked about this morning, we serve a merciful God a gracious God who gives us chance upon chance upon chance. But after our life is over, there are no more second chances. There is no additional place or state 
whereby we can get closer and nearer to God. There is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Leland mentioned some of these verses this morning, but I think it's important to notice that we are judged based on this life. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of the ones that we looked at this morning, I think it is just so clear and plain. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Matthew chapter 25, the throne room scene. Individuals are judged based on what they have done or not done. Did you visit me in prison? Did you bring me a cup of cold water? Were you kind to the stranger? Were you kind to the orphan, to the widow, to the poor? What you have done in this life is the basis upon our judgment, not a second chance that comes after this life. And I believe that scriptures are abundantly clear on that. Number two, the whole idea of purgatory is that there is some scale of sin. Individuals that have these great sins will not get the chance to go to purgatory. They are, they are gonna go to torment, they're gonna go to punishment. But if you just have a couple of these lesser sins, if you just come to the end of your life with a little bit of extra sin, you can have that purged or you can have that cleansed. My, my friends, that idea is found nowhere in scriptures. Nowhere in scripture do we see that God has some sort of a scale where some sins, well, they're not okay, but they're just really not that bad. That is, that is nowhere, that is nowhere in Scripture. I was thinking about uh, Bill's class this morning. I think that's a perfect example. Go back to James with me, James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, we were studying this morning and we were talking about partiality, talking about the situation where if you are in the assembly, if you are somewhere and you have two individuals that come in and you show partiality and favoritism to one individual because of their appearance. That's, I mean... On the scale of sins, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of a small thing. You know, we, we, have, we have some inherent biases that are part of our environment or part of our upbringing. You know, can we really control that if we show a little bit of favoritism? Look, look with me in verse 9. If you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Does God have some sort of scale of sin? Does he have lesser sins and greater sins? Does he have venial sins? Does he have mortal sins? If you stumble in one, you're guilty of all. If you commit the sin of partiality, partiality, showing favoritism, truly all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no lesser, no greater. If you think about some of the different scriptures that we're familiar with that talk about different sins, different things, note, note just the range of those. You, you can go back, Revelation 21. If you, we were looking there just a minute ago. Revelation chapter 21, verse eight. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. Just note the range of different things there. Everything from being, being cowardly 
being afraid, all the way to an unbeliever, someone who would not even acknowledge God, the almighty creator, a sorcerer, sexually immoral, a murderer, and a liar. I I, I think, this, this is just my thought, that's why we have some of these verses. Galatians chapter five, verses 19 through 21, that talk about the works of the flesh. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, such were some of you, as he reminds them of the sin that had stained them before their conversion. I think we have passages like this just to strike us with the range and the variety. It is not just the sexually immoral. It is not just the murderers. It is not just the psychopaths. It's liars. It's cowardly. It's those that would show partiality and favoritism. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Finally, our our, our last point, our last point for tonight. And I think this may be the, the greatest one that comes to me when I think about the idea of purgatory. When I think about the idea of a place where its only purpose is to provide further cleansing, is that that is a direct slap in the face to the sacrifice that Christ provided to us on the cross. Christ's sacrifice has fully cleansed us once and for all. He came to earth as a man and endured all of the trials and the tribulations and the suffering on a cross so that his one pure, perfect sacrifice could forever sanctify, cleanse, and purify those that would desire to draw near to him. And to say anything other, to say anything other is ignorance of the scriptures at best and blasphemy at worst. Let's look in 1 John, 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 there, in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all sin unrighteousness, not some unrighteousness, not most unrighteousness, not unrighteousness up until the point where if you forget to say one more prayer before you pass away, that unrighteousness isn't taken care of. If we confess our sins, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, if we have fellowship with him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to finish with this one. You could have picked lots of different passages in Hebrews, but there are several chapters in Hebrews that speak to this idea. As Hebrews goes back and it's looking at the old law and it's talking to these individuals about why the new law and the new covenant is so much better in in every way, why the old law was perfectly designed and custom made to point you to the new law. And it talks about Christ and his sacrifice, a sacrifice that no one else could offer, a sacrifice that he was uniquely qualified to offer, and a sacrifice that was designed by God 
to fully cleanse us of our sins. Well, let's, let's finish, and this is a little bit of a long reading, but let's finish with this. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 23. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. I want to read that one more time. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I will remember no more. Let's just stop right there. If we get to the end of our life and we are now in purgatory, facing some additional cleansing, additional further glorification, how can we reconcile that idea with the verses that are right here? One sacrifice for sins forever. And God saying, I will remember their sins no more. It sure sounds like he's remembering sins if there's additional things that need to be done. It's just not the case. It's just not the case. And brethren, I feel like the scriptures are very plain and very, very clear on this. I mentioned to you at the outset uh, twofold purpose, the twofold purpose of this tonight. One, I hope you, hope you learned something. Um, I hope that it provides you with a little bit of education. Um, I hope that it provides you with something so that if you do have the opportunity to talk with a friend or a neighbor or somebody that holds to this teaching or has this idea, maybe it'll even be a conversation starter for you. Maybe now you've got something that you can use to start a spiritual conversation, uh, to maybe start a Bible study, maybe to hopefully uh, start something there. But again, I also hope that it would, maybe, it would maybe give us some application, that God did not provide partial cleansing for us. God did not provide partial sanctification for us. God provided salvation, full and free to all who would come to it. And now here's where we circle back. Here's where we circle back to our, to our research point. Why is, this, why is this thought of purgatory, why is it so interesting to me? Why is purgatory so, so damaging, okay? When you go back and you look at that little research thing, I told you that it broke it down. It broke it down by the different religions. And what jumped out to me was that those religions that have purgatory as part of their teaching, those were the ones where the largest percentage of people said you did not need to believe in God. You know, 60, 65, 70%, you did not need to believe in God to go to heaven. If you think about it, if there is a second chance after this life, what is the need to be righteous now? What is the need to be diligent and have self-control and make sacrifice on a daily basis now? If sins are on a scale, you know, maybe I'm really not that bad. Do I need to change my life right now? You know, probably not. I probably don't need to change my life right now. If I've got a second shot, why do I even need God? You know, if there is a God, well, when I get there, maybe I'll just get a little extra cleansing. You know, 
What's 100 years or 200 years or 1,000 years in the grand scheme of eternity? I'll figure it out when I get there. That's the danger. That's where ideas like this can lead, is you get all the way to the point. This is not just a what happens after we die theological type question. This is how you change behavior over time, and you get so far removed to the point, maybe you don't even need to believe in God at all. That's the danger of a thought like this. Brethren, I hope this has been encouraging to you. I hope it's been edifying to you. And I'd be remiss if I did not offer the invitation. If there's anybody here tonight that has not experienced that salvation that we talked about that is full and free, if, if there's somebody that is here tonight, God offers it to you. Christ has already provided the sacrifice. He's already provided the sacrifice. And if you would respond to the call of the gospel... If you would have your sins washed away, we would love to help you. We would love to assist you. If there's anybody here tonight that has that need, please come forward while we stand and while we sing.